This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The Biden Prescription, Disaster Abroad and Revolution at Home. During the campaign of 2020, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. presented himself as the grown-up in the room. He held out the promise that he would restore order after the so-called chaos of the Trump administration. His knowledge, seasoned by over four decades on the national stage, would guide us out of the twin disasters of COVID and the urban violence that dominated news during the summer of 2020. Now that he is president, a very different picture emerges. He has allied himself with the most extreme left wing of his party. At the same time, he has presided over what may be the biggest foreign relations disaster in American history, perhaps even eclipsing the calamity of the war in Vietnam. This episode of the Return to Order Moment assesses aspects of both revolution and disaster. We begin with Mr. John Horvath's With the Fall of Afghanistan, We Enter a Dangerous New World. With the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban, we can say that the 9-11 era has officially ended. America's response to the 2001 terrorist attack is over. We have entered a post-9-11 era that woefully reflects the decay of our institutions and resolve. Indeed, America has changed in these 20 long years. The edifying unity and patriotism that bonded us back then are now transformed into fragmented and polarized discord. Our robust economy has suffered two major debacles and is now mired in debt, government spending, and socialistic controls. COVID has taken hundreds of thousands of lives, scrambled our certainties, and shattered the nation. Above all, we might recall how, in 2001, we looked briefly to God from the depths of our great affliction. In the pandemic, by locking people out of churches, we abandoned him. Now the terrible swift sword of our military might is humbled by the nation's inept leadership. The vacuum left by our defeat opens up the dangers of the post-9-11 world that awaits us. The 9-11 world concentrated on defending the post-war order from the threats of terrorism and disintegration. It required organization, sacrifice, and commitment. It assumed notions of good and evil when judging the irrational acts of terrorists on innocent people. At stake was the survival of the West with all its admitted shortcomings. We now enter a dangerous new post-9-11 world. It also has as its target the destruction of the American model. It assumes a world without rigid rules, moral judgments, or defined borders. It calls on America to abandon its aggressive stance against disorder and adopt a cynically isolationist position. At stake are the fundamental premises of who we are. We will not be left alone in this post-9-11 era. We can be sure that our enemies will attack us because we sustain the unified, rational, and universal systems that ensure Western prosperity. Even in our weakened state, we are an obstacle to the anarchical, green, and egalitarian worlds envisioned by Eastern and Western ideologues. We face two enemies in this war. 
The first is the external threats that gather at our gates to undermine, substitute, and fill the vacuum created by our ineptitude. They see and exploit our weaknesses. They encourage spineless mediocrity. Communist China is one of those external threats. The Red Chinese regime threatens to engulf the world with its atheistic communist system that has killed tens of millions, persecuted the church, and now seeks to dominate the world. Joining China are Cuba, Venezuela, North Korea, and Marxist worldwide who conspire to undermine American influence. Of special concern is the growing alliance of Russia and China. The other enemy is radical Islam. It has declared jihad against America and the Christian West. Islamists in Iran, Turkey, Lebanon, Syria, Pakistan, and now Afghanistan leverage these nation-states against us. Other Islamists wreak havoc across the greater Sahel. Their fundamentalism harkens to a distant and savage past. It stems from a reconstructed and remystified Islam, tailored to be a powerful rejection of all things Western. All these enemies will continue to attack us because we still resist the march toward their Marxist or Islamist utopias. These outside enemies may have different methods, orientations, and goals, but they share a hostility toward the West. They target America as the most visible manifestation of Western and even vaguely Christian ideals. They correctly reason that if America goes down, so does everything Western, good and bad. Dangerous as these external enemies are, America's greatest foe is the enemy within. This enemy is also bent on the destruction of all that represents Western Christian civilization. Its partisans seek to subvert everything informed by Christianity, our rule of law, property rights, and free enterprise, public morality, family, education, religion, culture, and civilized society. The advocates of critical race theory, for example, rewrite history to nullify all things Christian and Western. The liberal corporate establishment gleefully participates in this suicidal impulse. It finances anti-American sentiment. Its media mainstream the left's radical proposals. Figures inside academia's rotting structures amplify this political correctness, quote-unquote, wokeness, and deconstruction of the West. America has committed faults throughout its history. However, these sins are not the target of those inside America who work for our downfall. The real target is the Christian order. All the structures, customs, and traditions that even remotely reflect Christianity and the society it forged. All displays of hierarchy, identity, and even prosperity are condemned and framed into the worn-out class struggle narrative to fragment the nation. All this is done to make Americans hate who they are. Thus, the post-9-11 world represents a greater danger than the 20 years just ended. The 9-11 attack on America showed the enemy clearly, whereas our present plight is marked by uncertainty. 
One unified the nation in tragedy and sorrow. The other today splits us into a thousand shards of chaos and hatred. The first step to confronting this new threat is to recognize the goal of our enemies, to destroy America and overthrow all things Christian and Western. Thus, we must continue to engage in the fight for our culture. We must regroup, rebuild, and fight harder than ever, both here and abroad, wherever the Christian West is threatened. However, we must also humbly and prayerfully admit that the problems facing us are beyond human solutions. Our sinful liberal order is exhausted and spent. It cannot regenerate the West. If America and the West are to survive, we must return to order. We must return to that supernatural wellspring from which we first sprung. We must reconnect with that powerful Christian message that once changed the face of the earth. We must repent of our iniquities and amend our lives as requested by the Mother of God at Fatima. Then and only then will there be hope. Aided by God's sublime grace, we will be proportional and ready for the universal conflict bearing down upon us. Another troubling aspect of the current political situation is the fact that government structures at all levels are reluctant to abandon the controls they have exercised during the COVID emergency. This reluctance can be seen in many ways. We see it in the fact that young children who have been proven to be largely immune to COVID are forced to wear masks, even though the usefulness of those masks is doubtful. We see it in the reluctance to allow anyone, even those who have been vaccinated, to gather together. We see it in the difficulty that dissenting voices have broadcasting their concerns about the actions of government leaders and the medical establishment. Another COVID-inspired measure that has continued beyond its usefulness is the so-called eviction moratorium. Despite more than generous unemployment benefits and other payments, the leftists insist that those who have lost their jobs because of COVID cannot pay their rent. Despite the obvious absurdity of this position, even those on the right refuse to recognize the risk that the eviction moratorium presents to one of the most basic human liberties. Mr. Edwin Benson examines this situation in his essay, Why Does the Right-Wing Media Ignore the Major Issue Behind Biden's Eviction Moratorium? With President Biden's approval, the Centers for Disease Control, CDC, extended a quote-unquote moratorium on landlords evicting tenants until October 3, 2021. CDC Director Rochelle Walensky justified the measure by citing the quick spreading of the new Delta variant of the COVID-19 virus. She said that, quote, This moratorium is the right thing to do to keep people in their homes and out of congregate settings where COVID-19 spreads. Public health authorities must act quickly to mitigate such an increase of evictions, which could increase the likelihood of new spikes in the SARS-CoV-2 transmission, unquote. Much of the right-wing media condemned this power grab. Most criticism centered around three points. First, the measure is unconstitutional and that President Biden admits this fact. Second, 
It is unnecessary financially because many jobs and government benefits are now available. Third, this unsound policy distorts the rental market to the disadvantage of both landlords and tenants. All of these criticisms are sound. However, the more fundamental issue is the immoral and Marxist-inspired suppression of the natural law right to private property. Marx's second best-known statement, after his religion is the opiate of the masses, is that, quote, The theory of communism may be summed up in one sentence. Abolish all private property. Unquote. Doubtless, President Biden and Director Walensky would bridle at being labeled as Marxists. However, the final result of their policy is a cavalier disregard of private property in light of a variant that has not become an actual crisis. It certainly favors Marx's creed. Plato, Aristotle, and St. Thomas Aquinas all defended private property as a right. Writer and philosopher Edward Fieser sums up their ideas, quote, Children have the right to be provided for by their parents. And since the obligations that generate the rights in questions are obligations under natural law, rather than positive law, it follows that they are natural rights, grounded not in human convention, but in human nature. It is also critical that the family maintains a significant measure of independence. These considerations entail that families be able to amass wealth to which they have permanent rights of use and transfer, unquote. A vital component of the right to private property is the ability to rent it, including the ability to collect the agreed-upon rent payments. This idea enjoys protection by law and custom from time immemorial. Our Lord defended the rights of landlords in his parable about the owner of a vineyard, who rented it out to tenants who violently refused to pay the agreed-upon price. Quote, When therefore the Lord of the vineyard shall come, what will he do to those husbandmen? They say to him, He will bring those evil men to an evil end, and will let out his vineyard to other husbandmen that shall render him the fruit in due season. See Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 41. The Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution defends private property when it says that no person shall, quote, be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation, unquote. The eviction moratorium allows that which the Constitution says the government may not do. When the government cedes to tenants the legal ability not to pay the rent, it violates the landlord's property rights. The rental income is just as much private property as the house being rented. Some claim that the moratorium does not deprive landlords of the rent, but only delays payment until later. Such a defense displays an ignorance of how the economy works. Tenants purchase the right to use a property for a period of time. Once that time has elapsed, the delinquent tenants are disinclined to pay the rent retroactively. 
the landlord's only recourse is to the courts to seek payment or legal eviction of the tenants. In these cases, the landlord often fails to collect the past due rent, especially if the evicted tenants are indigent or leave town. Analysis of the moratorium fails to understand the economics of the rental market today. Purchasing rental real estate is a popular way to accumulate property and income. Such activity benefits the landlord, potential tenants, and all of society. This rental market is a crucial aspect of American life. Over one-third of American households live in rented homes. In addition, most landlords are not wealthy. In 2020, there were 43 million rental units in the United States. Slightly over half, 22.7 million of those units are owned by quote-unquote mom-and-pop landlords, individual investors. The average landlord owns three units, a figure that calculates in the corporate landlords. These figures reveal that many more people are renting out basement or second-floor apartments in their own homes than corporations managing apartment complexes. 50% of landlords report that they depend on the income from their rental properties. Marks notwithstanding, most landlords are not plutocrats seeking to oppress workers. The left uses the COVID crisis to expand government power in ways that most Americans would never tolerate under normal circumstances. With a wave of their pens, bureaucrats have closed schools, restaurants, and churches. When new evidence showed that some of these mandates were unnecessary and sometimes even harmful, federal and state agencies paid little attention. In almost all cases, the courts, presumed protectors of the powerless, came down on the side of the regulators. Many sought to justify the panic of March to May 2020 because the nation faced an unknown danger. That danger has now passed. It is now time to reassert natural law and the property rights that go with it. Until recent years, social conditions at home and the readiness of the military were separated. All acknowledged that a strong military was necessary to face the challenges that America faces from those who would endanger the life of the nation and its citizens. Such considerations are now rapidly evaporating. Mr. John Horvat analyzes one area in which the social agenda of the leftist is endangering the nation's military readiness in his essay, Drafting Women into Combat Spells the Death of Chivalry. The American military has always had recourse to the draft in times of emergency. Through this means, combat soldiers can be quickly recruited from the most effective human resource pool, strong young men. The draft is not about finding careers for young people or helping them to develop their full potential. War ruthlessly depletes the supply of foot soldiers in the field of battle. The draft efficiently replenishes those lost. Thus, behind the draft is the specter of death. Many die because they are called. The drafting of men minimizes the likelihood of death by choosing those most apt to survive the brutality of war. Nevertheless, the draft also represents a willingness of men to put the natural advantage of their strength at the service of good and the suppression of evil. 
Thus, it takes on a noble character. In the name of equality, the exclusively male draft could soon be discarded. Imposing the draft upon all young American women is a logical consequence of a new quote-unquote woke armed forces oriented not for war, but inclusion and diversity. The Senate Armed Services Committee has cleared the way for a full Senate vote that would require draft registration for all young American women. There is no compelling need to make the change. The draft pool is now more than sufficient. Angry feminists are not protesting at the Pentagon demanding the right to be drafted. Most experts agree that it will jeopardize military readiness for the wars that America will one day face. Thus, the expansion of the draft has nothing to do with winning on a physical battlefield. This metaphysical conflict is destroying institutions and certainties. For this reason, this fight is much more deadly than that of bullets and bombs. If a nation cannot agree on maintaining its institutions, then things will not function properly. If there is no agreement on certainties, everything explodes and polarizes. Thus, many people are circulating valid arguments about why women should not be drafted into battle based on the nature of war and the sexes. War is the use of brute force to resolve conflicts between nations. Its object is to destroy the greatest number of enemies in the least amount of time. Even most mechanical wars are eventually reduced to very personal and intense combats between soldiers. War is a test of wills and strength. This test requires physically strong soldiers to deal with the unforeseen consequences of injury, evacuation, capture, and adaptability. In general, men and women are not evenly matched in size, speed, and brute strength, as can be seen, for example, in sports. Thus, any army sending a mixed force into combat against another of men alone will be at a disadvantage in the heat of battle. In war, disadvantage translates into deaths and defeat. Study after study confirms the conclusion that mixed units endanger the state of military effectiveness in combat. It will increase the likelihood of death of these women. These poor victims must be sacrificed on the bloody altar of equality, however, to feed the twisted demands of feminists far from the battlefield. Terrible as these outcomes may be, the equal opportunity to die on the battlefield is not the real reason why the left insists on changing the draft. The left hates the traditional draft because it reaffirms the immense differences between men and women. The draft implicitly recognizes and favors the role that the two sexes exercise in the family. Thus, the more aggressive and protective nature of the man, as seen in the father, is more suited to war and therefore he is drafted. The nurturing qualities of the woman found in the mother do not lend themselves to the battlefield and thus she is not forced into combat. The left hates these distinctions since it refuses to recognize these differences. To leftists, sexual roles are socially constructed and therefore false. Indeed, 
Even sexual identity is constructed and can be changed at will. And that is the point of the drafting women debate. It is a sad declaration of war that declares biological facts no longer matter, nature can be denied, and reality is whatever people want it to be. The left imposes this vision with reckless disregard for the fatal consequences. The culture war it wages on anyone who denies their distorted perspective is far more brutal than physical combat. There is one final reason why the left hates the exclusive male draft. It is a lingering affirmation of chivalry. It reminds the world that there once was a time when men freely sacrificed themselves for God, the nation, and the defense of all. The left hates how the fearless knights selflessly entered battle, following a code of chivalry that bound them to protect the church, the nation, the family, the poor, and the weak. The archetypical figure of the medieval knight, and not its Renaissance distortion, was also a gentleman of manners and culture. He was, above all, a man of faith, abnegation, and religious devotion. He put the interests of God and others above his own. For this reason, the knight is the stuff of legends that captured the imagination of the West and still endures today. However, even the slightest memory of the knight must be destroyed if a sterile egalitarian society without legends is to be forced upon America. Thus, the male draft cannot be tolerated in a woke and inclusive military that dares affirm anything traditional. Topics like these define the culture war. It is not a battle between opinions and preferences, but about the nature of things. On one side are those who believe that men are still men and women are still women. They believe there are things worth fighting for. God matters in their fight. The conflict is between those who affirm the existence of values greater than life itself and for which one is willing to sacrifice and even die. On the other side are those who subscribe to the secularist socialist mentality, characterized by the denial of all things superior and a loathing for risk and pain. Its adherents demand security, license, and the fruitless pleasures that eventually lead to self-absorbing nihilism. This desire for gratification can become so totalizing that the left willingly sacrifices the lives of others to obtain its goals. The left's culture war on all who reject their egalitarianism is what is tearing America apart. This concludes The Biden Prescription, Disaster Abroad and Revolution at Home. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in the dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out the motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website 
www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2021 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFP.